Good morning. It is Monday morning, 6.10 a.m. Early rising here. I am an early riser. As a rule, last year for school, I was waking up at 4.30 in the morning. I have found that my best time to get exercised is pretty much first thing in the morning after a cup of coffee and breakfast. The longer I wait, the worse it gets. And especially when I was working, I didn't have time. So the structure of the morning was pretty much to the minute. But I had tried for many years to work out in the afternoon, both running and lifting weights. And that was just a bad strategy for me. And fitness is important. It allows me to hopefully age in a healthy way. I have no illusions that it's going to delay death for any long degree, but aging properly is really the goal that we're aiming for. And so this weekend I got, went out and played some uh, disc golf. The weather was super, super hot here in Pennsylvania, but it wasn't humid. A little, little windy. And I learned a lesson this weekend from disc golf. I learned a lot of lessons about disc golf, and I won't go on a long rant about disc golf. It was really unexpected that I picked up the sport I, uh, after retirement. After retiring from work, I you know, I had some free time. Helping out my dad was part of it when he needed some help back in the fall, in particular when he had some medical issues. But things have stabilized for the time being. So I have a decent amount of free time. And free time can be dangerous. It can be the rope that we hang ourselves with, uh, like addictions or alcohol or just getting hooked on the television. Nothing, nothing sadder if somebody's healthy that they sit in front of the television for any extended period of time. There's things in television that are worthwhile, but most of it's a wasteland. And I believe that pretty, pretty firmly. So I was out playing disc golf, and I've uh, been also watching the uh, disc golf networks. I got a subscription for a year. I just like to watch the sport. It's fun to watch people who play it well. And I learned I had a, uh, I had a fundamental error in my playing style. Uh, when you go to putt, which is similar to golf, uh, you know, disc golf has some of the same principles as ball golf. It's a little bit less difficult in a lot of ways. It requires probably more athleticism to be a disc golf player. Uh, playing a lot of hills when you play disc golf and in regular golf, you can't do that because the ball would just roll down the hill. But in disc golf, you can play very three-dimensional courses, which is kind of fun. There's a course across the river, which is up on a hillside. And, you know, you get these beautiful views of the river. But I, I, I was watching the pros and some other videos, and I noticed when they do their putting, uh, they, lead with their, um, they lead with their strong foot, which is related to their strong arm. So if you're a right-hander, if you throw right-handed, you lead when you putt with your right foot. And in basketball, it's the opposite. If you're right-handed, if you play good fundamental basketball, you're actually left-footed because of how the game is played, and there's a bunch of rules for that. And you see a lot of pro players that don't play good fundamental basketball these days. They're tremendous athletes and very talented basketball players, but they don't have good fundamentals. drives me nuts because with a little bit of fundamentals, they'd be even better. But they weren't trained to play good fundamental basketball. They were trained to be freelancers and shooters and dunkers on the court. And it's not to say the new game's not better. I think it's better in a lot of ways than the old ways, but... There's a principle in basketball that if you shoot the basketball, you follow your shot. And it's amazing the pros don't do that. I'm just like, you know where the ball is going when you shoot it more than anybody. It's an imprecise science. And they don't even follow their shots. They launch and they just watch it or walk away. Drives me crazy. Uh, but lead with your strengths. Uh, when you put off your, off your right foot uh, and you use your right arm to throw the disc, you're, you're playing to your strengths. And there's a, there's a principle... 
in life that you want to go with your strengths occupationally probably more true than other places but relationally uh, just a thousand things you can think of with going with your strengths uh, you have to address the weaknesses that will hurt you if it's a weakness that won't hurt you then don't worry about it but for example like some people aren't great at computers but you have to have some computer knowledge to function in most of the jobs today if you don't have some working knowledge of computers even if you're not good at them you will struggle because so much of people's jobs, especially white-collar positions, and even a lot of blue-collar jobs, require good computer skills. Not, not great. You don't have to be a computer scientist, but you have to have uh, strong, strong enough skills to function. We can be thankful that Soren did not become a pastor. He had gone to get his master's degree, the equivalent of a master's uh, in Denmark, and had eventually accomplished that goal. I think he did a, uh, his master's thesis was on Socrates and irony. Um, so him and Socrates are kind of uh, fellow fellow philosophers, see things very much the same way. And uh, Socrates had enormous influence on Soren. But Soren was going to be a pastor. And I think this is when he was engaged to uh, Regina. Like he was kind of planning his life and what it was going to look like and you know, get married and be, a, be in a stable position of a pastorate out in the country somewhere, have some kids, maybe right on the side. And then, as we know, the whole thing capsized. That was not the plan anymore. And we can be thankful that Soren did not become a pastor. I think one of the reasons that Soren's not more popular is he kind of really frustrated two constituencies that could have been kind of a natural constituency for him. The first constituency that he alienated was uh, the church. Uh, you know, when you say that most churchgoers and most pastors are shopkeeping souls just punching the clock and not very passionate about their faith. That's pretty insulting to a lot of people. So he wasn't going to get a lot of advocacy from the church. Um, the church was not going to promote him as one of their own. He was an outsider, and he was Christian, but he was an outsider, so his testimony would have been very hard for the church to support because there was a lot in that testimony that was not pro-church, pro-institution, pro-rituals, pro-rules, pro-Christendom. The alliance with the state the state was not something that Soren was in favor of. The second constituency they fell out of was kind of the modern intellectual um, zeitgeist of the age. Soren was not uh, a materialist. He was not a theosophist. He was not just a philosopher living entirely in the abstract, although he has a lot of abstract thoughts in a way. Um, his writing is difficult. I, I wouldn't say his thoughts are abstract. They're very lofty. And you have to kind of work on making them practical because that was something that, um, you know, that I don't think was a strong point always of Soren. But he, he ran afoul of the contemporary literary and intellectual scene of, of Denmark and also of modern philosophy throughout Europe. And his, uh, his tenacious hold on kind of scriptural references and scriptural basis for his thinking and his writing was really counter to uh, the trends of the age, which were secular and Renaissance and uh, all those things, empiricism like we've talked about before. But we can be thankful that Soren um, was an outsider you know, it kind of cracks me up when there's people that are famous that are doing podcasts, and then they're uh, 
they have little sections of their podcast where they have to, you know, talk about their sponsors. And sometimes there's really weird configurations of what they're talking about. Really have nothing to do with the show itself. And they're, they're kind of twisting uh, the message to fit the podcast in a way. <laughs> it's, it's bad sometimes. It's a real, really thin thread. Or people that have a lot of money are still getting sponsorship for their podcast. It makes me wonder why they're doing it. Like, you already have enough money. What's the point? Like, are you just adding more gold to your gold and a higher pile to sit upon? I don't I don't know what the purpose is. Uh, we can be thankful that Soren was not beholden to anybody, besides his father, for the money that he had left him. But that was a done deal. When his father passed, there wasn't much, I don't think, in terms of... Um, regulations or restrictions on what Soren could do with the money. I think there it may have been doled out at a certain pace. I don't know. But we can be thankful that Soren wrote what he thought he should write, and he wasn't beholden to anybody. He wasn't like, brought to you by the Corsair, you know, and kind of party the, the Corsair line. And if you don't know what the Corsair is, look it up. I don't want to get into it again. Drinking Hawaiian coffee. So today's a melancholic day. Because the book is almost finished. We're on page 82, and it goes to page 90. I'm pretty sure we're going to finish today. This is the lily of the field. And the bird of the air. There's always a sadness in ending a book. Uh, it's like a great experience once it's done, if the book was any good, or a great trip, or a great meal, or a good conversation. One of those things that's painful about life is knowing that it won't last and so a book is a lot like a life. When you come to an end of a book, it's an end of a chapter of your life. And people use that terminology all the time. So we're going to go to page 82 here on the lily of the field, the bird of the air. This is Soren. How then do the lily and the bird manage this, uh, which is almost like a miracle and uh, deepest sorrow to be unconditionally joyful when it is so frightful, to, frightful tomorrow than to be, that is to be unconditionally unconditionally joyful today how do they manage it they manage it quite plainly and simply as the lily and the bird always do and that they, they get rid of tomorrow as if it did not exist there is a saying of the by the apostle paul that the lily and the bird have taken to heart and simple as they are they take it quite literally ah and precisely this taking it quite literally is what helps them these words have enormous power when they are taken quite literally when they are not taken literally exactly according to the letter they are more or less powerless finally uh, merely a meaningless figure of speech but unconditionally unconditional simplicity is required in order to take them unconditionally together altogether literally cast all your care or sorrow upon god now, Soren was incorrect. It was not the Apostle Paul that wrote that. That was Peter. And Soren issued a retraction and a correction at some point. So there's a footnote on this. Kierkegaard subsequently recognized that his reference here to the Apostle Paul was erroneous. In his journal entry NB 11 168 from the early summer of 1849, Soren wrote, it is rather odd that the three godly, in the three godly discourses I ascribe Peter's cast all your sorrows, sorrows on God to Paul. And this is from Bert, Bruce H. Kermsey et al. Eds and translated Kierkegaard's journals and notebooks, Princeton, New Jersey, Princeton University Press, 2012, volume 6, page 95, see 1 Peter 5, 7. Yeah, that's, the, that's Peter who... Um, 
who said, cast all your cares upon and sorrow upon God. So CERN wants us to do that like the lily of the field and the bird of the air. And I was really interested in this use of the word cast because, as you might know, the Apostle Peter was prior to becoming a follower of Jesus and having to lay aside his fisherman's business. He was a, a, a fisherman. And they use nets uh, on the Sea of Galilee. And when we use the word cast, it kind of reminded me of a fisherman throwing his nets into the, um, into the sea to catch fish. And there's stories in the Bible about you know, Peter throwing his nets overboard and not having any caught anything. And then Jesus comes and he catches a bunch of fish. And it's kind of a symbol of, of ministry you know, that Jesus has to be in it. And uh, he'll give you the strength of your net to be able to bear upon the uh, the bountiful harvest of the catch of the sea. But casting is not apparently referred to in the Bible as something that's done by a fisherman. Although I think Peter might have been thinking of it. The only other time the word casting is used in this term uh, in the Greek is when Jesus is going into Jerusalem and people are laying down their their garments and putting it upon the the colt um, that he's riding on as a king coming into Jerusalem. And uh, that's the only other time that's used. And it's, it's a, uh, that casting is, is symbolic of Jesus being the Messiah. Uh, so this same word casting that Peter uses to talk about cast your cares upon God for he cares about you is used uh, in the same way as these people uh, who greeted Jesus coming in. It's called the triumphant, triumphant entry into Jerusalem before Jesus was crucified. Talk about a change of plans, right? And at least in the eyes of the followers of Jesus, uh, not Jesus himself. He knew it was coming. Uh, but it was, a, it was a tribute to his messiahship. But it was a messiah that was not of, of making according to what man thought. Messiah that the uh, Jews wanted was someone that was going to expel the external en enemy of the Romans. The Romans were greatly hated by the Jews. They were considered pagans and godless. Um, did all kinds of things to offend the Jews. Uh, the Jews also didn't like their leadership because they were in bed with the Romans. That's the way power usually operates behind the scenes is that you know, people may be publicly against something, but privately, they're in bed with the people, and that happens all the time in politics. Think about corporate America. It likes to portray itself as fairly liberal, fairly uh, progressive, but in the end, it operates like a raw capitalist machine that it is, and all this other stuff is just window dressing to buy off the Democrats. Yes, I said it, but it's true. I do have a guest coming in on, uh, on Wednesday who's an artist. I'll tell you more about her on Wednesday. I don't want to lead too much with this, but her name is Madison Myers. Uh, she is a recent graduate of the University of Tennessee in Chattanooga. I was down there in the fall. It was super cool. Um, so she's going to be here on Wednesday. Hopefully the technology will work out well. I'm hoping it will, uh, but she has a very unique style as an artist, and I think it really uh, lends itself well to talk about Soren Kierkegaard because Soren was all about being an individual and find your individual gifts and lead with your strengths and go with what you feel God has called you to do. So let's finish up on this, page 84. And if one does not cast it unconditionally upon God, but somewhere else, then one is not unconditionally rid of it. Then one way or another, it comes back again, most often in the form of even, even greater, more bitter, bitter sorrow. 
For to cast away but not cast upon God is distraction, but distraction is a dubious and ambivalent remedy to, for sorrow. On the other hand, unconditionally to cast all sorrow upon God is collectedness. And yet, amazingly, this is the feat performed by this contradiction, a collectedness through which you unconditionally get rid of all sorrows. Learn then from the lily of the bird, cast all your sorrows upon God. But you shall not cast away joy. On the contrary, you should hold fast to it with your might and all your vital strength. So think about casting. I like the net analogy. I think it makes sense. Like if you're a fisherman and your livelihood in your eyes is dependent upon catching, uh, catching fish and you're throwing your fish into the Sea of Galilee or wherever or your line. And, you know, you don't know if there's going to be any fish that get into that net. So that net can become very symbolic of worry. It can be very symbolic of worry that you're casting your net upon the waters and you don't know if there's going to be any fish that are going to pay the bills on the other side. So even though I don't think the Bible has proof that Peter uses this word cast in the same way that uh, a fisherman would, I think he's thinking that way. I don't know for sure. The reason why it's not used earlier in the Bible and comes out in First Peter, I think, in Second Peter, this word cast, is Peter didn't write uh, any books of the Bible until First and Second Peter. I think there's a third Peter, too. I might be wrong. First and Second Peter for sure. Um, maybe just First uh, and Second Peter. Now I think about it. Uh, Peter was a fisherman. He wasn't a scholar, but I think he did learn how to write. Obviously, as he got older, and he learned to be more scholarly. But the Gospel of Mark, which apparently came from Peter, was written by Mark, who was a follower of Peter or a, a, a younger guy that worked with Peter to get those stories onto parchment or onto papyrus, as they say. I think it's true about the sorrow that if you don't cast it upon God, let's say you cast it on something else, you cast it on addiction or alcohol or being busy or a thousand things that people use to distract themselves, the sorrow just multiplies. And if things are not dealt with, this is a truism in life, they will come back. They may not look entirely the same, but conceptually they will have a lot of the same principles. So if a person doesn't deal with their addictive nature, no matter how it manifests itself, it doesn't get better on its own. I've talked about this, I think, a little bit before, maybe not a ton, but I, I'm prone to addictive behavior. I'm prone to drinking too much, and I know that about myself, and I try to be honest about it. Like, I, I, make, uh, I make some principles, and they're not rules, really. They're more principles, but there's, there's certain traits and certain thing, practices I use. Like, I don't try to drink three or four times a week. I just totally abstain, which is easy for me. Surprisingly, it's a lot easier for me not to drink than to drink. And that's just a fact. When I drink, it's harder to stop. Uh, so it's easier not to drink at all because it's not, I don't have that, um, that uh, need to now put the brakes on, on on something that's moving. So I try three or four times a week, and ideally four times a week, to be completely beer-free. I usually don't drink hard alcohol. I think that's dangerous in most cases. I like doing shots. You can have a mixed drink. That's fine. But, you know, hard alcohol is stronger, and it's it's more intoxicating quicker. Uh, beer, especially the beer that I've been trending to, is kind of a lagers, lower in alcohol. But I can be a problem drinker. There's no doubt about it. And hopefully that's not scandalous. I want to be open here. 
Uh, but I like, force myself into certain principles. Like I try to drink later in the day. I try to drink lighter alcohol beers. I try to do something athletic before. Now, yesterday I had a friend stopping by that I used to work with at, at the former high school where I was employed, and it's good to catch up with him every so often. And his schedule worked better for drinking in the morning yesterday. And I'm not a big morning drinker. I don't like it. I think it's dangerous. Day drinking is, 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 is troubling. Uh, but I can make an exception to the rule, but after having a beer or two, I think I drank two beers and they were lower alcohol IPAs. I went out and played disc golf out you know, about seven minutes from my house at a new course that they've developed here in West Hempfield Township. I went out and threw my new disc, the uh, Valkyrie. It's a, kind of a, a long distance disc. There's all kinds of discs, just like golf clubs for different reasons. And this one's tricky to learn how to throw. So I, I watched some videos and I went out to play on this, um, on this course, and I didn't play the whole course, I just played hole two, which is very flat, so I could work on my toss. So I went out and played for about an hour after drinking this beer, uh, rather than just sitting around and slugging another one and slugging another one and slugging another one. Uh, so that's some of the principles I follow. Uh, you know, skip three or four times a week, don't start until later in the day, try to put a sporting event or athletic or something worthwhile before it. Uh, eat with, uh, eat with the alcohol. Don't just drink because, you know, hunger can also lead to more drinking because your body's saying, Hey, I want more calories or want food. And then we're like drinking more alcohol. So it's a bad combination. It also slows down the metabolism of the alcohol if you eat food. So I'm just using that as an example that when Soren talks about cast your cares upon the Lord, we all have worries. We all have stress. We all have things that bother us. And uh, that's not, that's not unique. You're a human being. You're going to have struggles. Uh, some people have more than others for various reasons, and we won't get into that. Some of it's their own fault. Some of it's other people's fault. Some of it's a combination. Some people just live in dangerous, awful areas. You know, all those things that we didn't control. All those things that we thought we think are our, our God-given rights are things that we didn't have anything to do with. We were just kind of plopped down where we were plopped down, the great lottery of life, and we were born here versus there. Uh, but it is true that if we have struggles and we have adversity and we have heartache and we have difficulties, if we handle those in the wrong way, they will often turn into a pack of wolves and chase us until we deal with them. And at some point, you either got to jump over a fence and get away from them, or sometimes you're backed up against the wall and you have to face your wolves and start taking them out. And it ain't pretty. And to deal with these, uh, to deal with these issues... And these uh, things are very difficult. So we have a lot of people these days that think religion is outdated, and you know Christianity is a, is a barbar barbaric uh, manifestation of the past. But then they live their lives in very sad ways. Like if you think this is not worth your time, you think you would live a, a better life that you wouldn't have so many pathologies. And that that would be my response as as a believer that the world likes to make fun of of Jesus, but then it's consumed by its appearance on Instagram and takes all those pictures of itself. And, you know, we always want to present our best self to other people, which is basically a fiction. We can't even admit and being honest that we have struggles. Um, so cast your cares upon the Lord and he shall, he shall take those cares, but don't cast away joy. Keep that. So we're at 23 minutes. That's it for today.